Imagine you are under a lot of stress. For many of us, that's not that hard to imagine. Your stress might be due to financial struggles, unachievable expectations from your community, sickness, famine, or other reasons. Now, imagine your loved one is acting strange and could not stop. They could be doing something totally irrational. This concerns you. Then, you see another loved one participating in this behavior. This concerns you even more. Now, all of a sudden, you are doing this behavior. What is happening? Why are you doing this? You could be a victim of mass hysteria. Hello, 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 everyone. You're listening to Creeping Out Katie. I'm Katie. Thank you for joining me for another creepy episode. In this podcast, I talk about different creepy things that scared me as a child. I will also talk about the history behind them and if they're actually scary. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review on your favorite listening platforms. Hey, hey, guess what? We made it to episode 10. Thank you so much, you wonderful listeners. I truly appreciate your support. This episode is actually going to be a season finale. Don't worry, I'm just taking a break from creeping out Katie for a bit. Riversticks Audio and I are planning on other projects for the new year. I cannot get into too much detail, but I will say that by April I will revise my old mini-series, Girls of Helter Skelter. This was a mini-series I had made on our other podcast, Sex Appeal Woman on Trial. This series goes into detail about the lives of the young girls who are part of the Manson family cult. In the future, I will be part of other podcasts we plan this year for Riversticks Audio, so follow for more updates. I am planning on bringing back Creeping Out Katie by August 2023. Thank you again for all the support. This creepy episode is about mass hysteria. In medical terms, mass hysteria, or collective delusions, are described as a spontaneous manifestation of a particular behavior by a number of people. This could be caused by a phantom illness or an unexplainable event. Mass hysteria often occurs in small, tight-knit groups of people or communities. From what I've noticed in my research, mass hysteria cases have the few elements in common. These include shared delusions, high anxiety environments, irrational behaviors or events, and symptoms of physical or mental illness. Today I'll be talking about six events of mass hysteria. For now, relax, enjoy, and try not to get creeped out. War of the Worlds Radio Broadcast, 1938 People nowadays can hopefully tell the difference between fact and fiction, especially in media. However, that was not the case in 1938. Picture this. I can't do it. I can do it. I can do it. Picture this. An actor named Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater on the air narrated and broadcast an adaptation of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. He dramatized the book as a series of news broadcasts at the Columbian Broadcasting System radio station. In this Halloween broadcast, fictional newscasters report a Martian invasion in New Jersey as if it was true events. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm done. I'm done. That was terrible. I'm so sorry. No one involved with the broadcast expected, let alone intended, to deceive any listeners simply because they all found the story a little too silly to be taken seriously. Now, let's get a little background on what was happening during this time. The broadcast was aired when there was growing tensions of another world war. In fact, it was just a year before the official beginning of World War II. Nazi Germany was on the rise, Italy and Japan were invading surrounding countries, and America was trying not to get involved. The American listeners were probably terrified of hearing that they were being attacked, let alone by space aliens. Many listeners did not know that the narration was a reading piece of fiction. Yes, it did state it was fake in the beginning of the broadcast. However, you just can't rewind a 1930s radio broadcast. When the listeners turned on the radio with zero context, they believed it was a real news bulletin. Like, holy moly, aliens are attacking us? It's the end of the world as we know it. So what do we have here? 
a high anxiety environment, and yeah, I would say an alien invasion would be considered an irrational event. Within hours of the broadcast, there were reports of mass stampedes, riots, and suicides. People in New York and New Jersey panicked in the streets, running outside to see the so-called invaders attacking their home. It took the police hours to resolve the mess. The next day, Wells and his crew were shocked to find out what happened. Like I said, they thought it was a harmless broadcast. People actually threatened to kill Wells if they ever saw him in person. He said, quote, If I'd planned to wreck my career, I couldn't have gone about it better. Don't feel bad for Wells, though. Like many celebrities today, you would think that he would be cancelled for causing great distress with misinformation. However, RKO Radio Pictures, a major Hollywood studio, offered Wells a six-picture contract offering $150,000 per film. Wells later directed and starred in Citizen Kane, a film that is now regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. You know, that was in, you know, the late 30s. People later on would have known that supernatural isn't real and history would not repeat itself, right? Ghostwatch, 1992. This will sound familiar if you listen to my episode, The Formality of Found Footage Films. Ghostwatch was a fictional ghost hunting broadcast purposely meant to look like a live paranormal investigation of a British family's home. This show had a phone number people could call to talk about their own paranormal encounters. It also stated that the whole show was fictional. Now, I think the phone call was the only way to determine if the show was fake or not. I do not find any other information stating that it was fake. Found footage style media was rare at the time and it was not truly mainstream until the Blair Witch Project. From the way the show presented itself, Many people believe that they were actually watching a real ghost haunt and attack a family and news crew. Adults and children were traumatized from watching the broadcast. A few years after it aired, scientists viewed the brain scans of two boys who watched it live. They showed signs of PTSD, experiencing sleeping difficulties, fear of the dark, panic attacks, and horrific nightmares. There were even reports of three pregnant women giving premature births due to stress. I would categorize this as a shared delusion and irrational event, simply because the viewers were told that this was a live event and the ghosts they saw on screen were real. To everyone's credit, the editing was extremely well done for the time. They had the ghost in plain sight sometimes, and then he would disappear quick enough to make you think you mistook him. The BBC network never aired Ghostwatch again. Since publishing the Formality of Found Footage Films episode, I found out that you can watch Ghostwatch on Tubi for free if you are interested. The Laughing Epidemic of Tanganyika, 1962 The first person who said laughter is contagious had no idea how true it was. On January 31, 1962, the students at a mission-run boarding school for girls in Kashian, Africa, started to laugh. It began with three girls and spread throughout the school, affecting 95 out of 159 students. Now, teenagers laugh at anything and everything. However, this wasn't a normal case of the giggles. Reports of the laughter resulted in pain, fainting, respiratory problems, and even rashes. It spread to 14 schools and about a thousand people were affected. Symptoms varied, lasting from a few hours to 16 days. We all had a laugh that left us breathless and gasping for air. However, they'd never gone longer than five minutes, let alone two weeks. The teaching staff were not affected and reported the students were unable to concentrate on their work. The school was sued for allowing the children and their parents to transport the laughter to the surrounding areas. They actually treated the laughter as if it was a virus spreading through the land. In total, the phenomenon only lasted for about 18 months. As strange as this episode was, some people theorized that it was stress-induced. 
That year, students had reported feeling stressed about the high expectations by teachers and parents. Yes, randomly laughing is a strange thing to do prolong, but what if they were dancing? St. Vitus Dance of 1518 In July 1518, residents of the city of Strasbourg, then part of the Holy Roman Empire, was struck by a sudden urge to dance. Now, this wasn't a fun jigabug, no siree. The victims began to dance day and night uncontrollably until they fell down unconscious. Once they woke up, they went right back to dancing. Before we talk about the dancing plague, let's talk about Strasbourg. For decades, the city went through many, many hardships. According to records, in 1492, the crops died and there was a famine. The next year, many of its residents got syphilis. In 1507, hail the size of apples plummeted from the sky, killing most of the crops. Also during this time, the case of a bubonic plague swept the city. They suffered extremely cold winters in 1511 and 1514, as well as a drought in the summer of 1516 and causing more famines from the lack of food. So yeah, not the best circumstances. You can only imagine the stress the citizens of Strasbourg were under. The city was under the control and supervision of the church. The clergy and local monasteries did not help the peasants and even upcharge the price of grain. The peasants were left with poor physical and mental shape. In fact, before the Dancing Plague, they had a lesser-known mass hysteria case. Author John Waller, who wrote The Dancing Plague, the strange true story of an extraordinary illness, stated the people of Strasbourg were seeing visions of their dead loved ones. Quote, Thousands imagined their dead relatives to have escaped from purgatory, running and screaming to the music of drums and pipes. Many of those killed in battle were reported to be carrying their bloodied and mangled limbs. That's terrifying. No thank you. You might be thinking, wow, besides the dancing plague, this can't get any worse, right Katie? Nope, that's wrong. In 1517, also known as the bad year, it is literally called the bad year. The bad year repeated all of the horrific events from the previous years, as well as some new ones to throw in a little spice. There were frozen crops, hail showers, an outbreak of the smallpox, an outbreak of leprosy, and some mysterious disease called the English sweat. You sweat till you die. I, I do not envy these people at all, good lord. Now we can finally talk about the dancing mania. A woman named Frau Tufia stepped out of her home and into the street looking a little dazed. She then began to silently twist, twirl, and shake. At first, passerbyers probably thought, okay, weird, but alright. However, she kept on dancing, and dancing, and dancing, until she passed out from exhaustion. When she woke up, she started to dance again. Those around her could not get her to stop. According to author Jennifer Wright in her book Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them, by the third day, blood was oozing out of her shoes. The people had several theories on why she was dancing. Some thought that she was cursed by God or by St. Vitus, the patron saint of what is now known as epilepsy. Funny enough, the shrine of St. Vitus was about 30 miles away from Strasbourg. Another theory was she was dancing out of spite for her husband who hated dancing. If that was true, I love this level of pettiness. On her sixth day of dancing, poor Frau was taken to the shrine of St. Vitus. It is unknown what her fate became. It is possible she stayed at the shrine until she stopped dancing or until her death. Well, that was weird, but that's it. It's over, right? Nope. On July 21st, over three dozen other townsfolks had joined in on the dancing. By August, there were at least a hundred dancing victims. Thankfully, the people who were not affected show kindness to those afflicted and try to help them any way they can. 
to be fair, these people have seen a lot worse. The dancers would dance until they drop, and when they got up, they would dance some more. No one had any explanation on the dancing phenomena. The Council of Magistrates hired local physicians to figure out what was happening. These medieval physicians believe that the citizens of Strasbourg had, quote, hot blood, quote, dance is a natural disease, which comes from overheated blood, end quote. In response, a stage was constructed in the center of town for everyone to dance on. They even hired a band to provide music and professional dancers to lead them. Many victims collapsed from sheer exhaustion. They were brought back to their feet and kept on dancing. Unfortunately, some victims died from the strokes and heart attacks during this time. Listen, sometimes it's best not to fight fire with fire. The magistrates then banned music and sent people to stay home to avoid spread. However, the dancing continued. I don't know why, but this is just giving me footloose vibes. In September, the church finally whisked the dancers away to St. Vitus' shrine to pray for forgiveness. A wax sculpture of the saint was made as an offering. The victims were given red shoes as well. Why? I want to say it's to hide their bloody feet. I'm not sure, but hey, cool new kicks. At the shrine, the dancers danced around the altar and gave one penny as donation. From this action, everyone was cured. The dancing plague was then called St. Vitus' Dance. I'm surprised it took the church over two months to send the people to the shrine. However, it's even more surprising that they danced for over two months. What could have led people to dance themselves to death? According to John Waller, the explanation most likely concerned St. Vitus. At the time, the Europeans believed the saint had the power to curse people with epilepsy. When combined with the horrors of Strasbourg's previous diseases and famine, the St. Vitus superstition may have triggered a stress-induced hysteria. One theory stated that the victims accidentally ingested a toxic mold that grows on damp rye and produces spores and hallucinations. Another theory suggested that the dancers were members of a religious cult. At the time in this area, other practicing religions were banned, such as ancient Greek and pagan beliefs. These performances could have been under the guise of the uncontrollable dancing. I don't believe this to be true, but at the same time, it's kind of funny to think that someone might have thought, Ah, oh, man, we can't let the Roman church know that we're followers of Dionysus. Hey, let's just, you know, dance in the street and say we can't stop. What is the church going to do, huh? Actually, if they were the followers of Dionysus, they would have done some other things, if you know what I mean, but eh, good for them if it's true. The Possessed Nuns of Ludon Now, picture yourself as a ye old nun. You and other women are living isolated from society in a cold stone convent. We all went through lockdown. We know that being isolated is tough on its own, especially when there's a wave of the plague outside. Now, implement dedicating your life to a higher power in a high stressful environment. This includes repetitive religious rituals, strict rules with severe punishments if ever broken, and being on a strict diet. The Loudon Processions was a notorious witch trial that took place in Loudon, France in 1634. For context, this case took place a few years after the Second Plague pandemic. It all started in 1633, when the 17 nuns of the convent of Ursulines said that they had been visited and possessed by demons. According to officials, the nuns were shouting, swearing, barking, and contorting their bodies in unholy ways. No, 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 not like, not like that. Pastor Nicholas Ubong stated that he saw the women whip their heads back and forth as if their necks were broken. They twisted their arms about, moving their shoulders, elbows, and wrists around. They also laid on their stomachs and touched the palms of their hands to the soles of their feet. Their tongues were swollen with black zits, yet they could still speak clearly. They were examined by doctors, and they surprisingly could not find anything physically wrong with them. 
even though I just said that their tongues were black, but whatever. The final conclusion was that these nuns were possessed by demons. Yep, that is the only solution. Let's see, we got shared illusions, high anxiety environment, and I believe stating that you are possessed is an irrational behavior or event. And unlike those doctors, I would say that a black tongue is a physical illness. Also, a lot of people in this tight-knit community, as well as thousands of others, believed in these possessions and shared illusions. After several failed exorcisms, many priests and doctors came to the convent. Eventually, news spread about the possessed nuns and they became a spectacle that many of the townsfolk would watch. Literally, they would take the possessed nuns, make them walk to the center of a town, and have a public execu execution? <laughs> oh no. And have a public exorcism. These exorcisms were performed in front of large crowds with people from different parts of Europe coming to see them. The nuns were tied up and a few holy men would wave their crucifixes around to get rid of the demons. From my research, the exorcism sounded very repetitive and performative. The nuns would come down and go, ah, blah, blah, demons, blah, commit sin. And the holy men would go, back to hell, demons, we have the power of God on our side. And the nuns would go, ah, no, we are no match to his great holiness. Oh, we've been defeated. And they would go right back to the convent. However, they'll come back the next day, same time, same place, to be defeated by faith again and again and again every day for about a year. Now listen, I was going to end it here, but I love me some dirty, dirty gossip. This next part of the story is going to sound very politically driven as well as kind of personal. You'll see why. The possessed nuns eventually stated that they were cursed by a wicked sorcerer. This evil sorcerer had made a deal with the devil himself. Eventually, they admitted that the alleged sorcerer was a local priest named Urbane Grenadier. What? A man of God? In cahoots with the devil? Why would a priest be blamed for this terrible allegation? Well, this priest had a bit of a bad boy reputation. Grandier was known to have campaigned against King Louis XIII's efforts to centralize power. He had major beef with the cardinal at the time, Cardinal Richelieu. Not only that, he was known to have fought the cardinal, like, not just disagreements. I mean, actually push Richelieu out of his way and maybe even punched him when they were younger. If his reputation wasn't bad enough, he also got the daughter of a local prosecutor pregnant. I don't know if you are aware, but going against the king, disagreeing with the leader of the church, and premarital sex are big no-nos in the priesthood. This case gets crazier. As the kids would say, the nuns had their receipts. They had proof that Grandier made a deal with the devil himself. They produced a copy of a document he signed with the devil and other demons, trading his soul for witchcraft. The commissioners of the area took the statements from witnesses, stating that they have seen Grandier mysteriously appear at the convent at all hours, although no one knew how he was able to get inside. The priest was further accused of all manners of indecency, don't know what, but all of them, and he was arrested and sent to trial. So you can imagine, Grandier was not a well-liked guy and it's very likely the court accepted false allegations, evidence, and testimony to get him. At the trial, it was said that he had the mark of the devil in two places. The mark of the devil is a physical mark on your body that shows that you have made a deal with the devil. Can you guess where the marks were? If you guess Botox and testicles, you are a silly goose of an individual, and you are right. The court hired a surgeon who may or may not have been related to the girl Grandier knocked up, and the surgeon poked him with a large needle in those areas to look for the marks. The surgeon claimed to have seen the marks after torturing Grandier a little bit. 
However, on trial, the leader of the nuns, as well as two other nuns, recounted their statements, saying she accused the priest under false pretenses. However, the judge believed that Grandier was magically making the woman say this because they were still under his curse. On August 18, 1634, he was found guilty and charged with sorcery, evil spells, and possession over the nuns. Grandier was sentenced to death. The court wanted him to admit his guilt before his execution, however he refused and was tortured. His legs were crushed but he still held onto his innocence. Later that day, he was burned at the stake in front of a crowd of over 6,000 people. You might be thinking, okay, it's clear that the nuns and the church wanted this guy out, so they had their revenge and everything was Gucci, right? The nuns went back to normal? Nope! In fact, the demons were no longer just possessing the nuns. Now they were jumping to person to person. Those who were now possessed included two priests, a judge from the trial, and the surgeon who poked Grandier. These men shortly died after the trial. Eventually, another priest came to the convent, told the demons to possess him, and finally stopped the nun possessions. After three long years, the demons cleared out of the convent in October 1637. The priest who took the demons had them in him for about, I think, a decade or so, and then eventually they left him alone. So like I said earlier, this event happened a year after the second wave of the plague. Once again, you know how hard it is living through an actual plague on your mental and physical state. Uh, to end the podcast on a slightly happier note, I found another nun-related mass hysteria. This one is not as dramatic. The Medieval Meowing Nuns Before we talk about this case, the only source for this event comes from 1835's The Epidemics of the Middle Ages by German physician Justus Hecker. Please note this is the oldest source of the event and was never documented at the time. Because of this, some believe this event is totally fictionalized. Any additional information after this publishing could be completely fabricated to make the story more interesting. For the podcast, I will be presenting it as true. However, it's up to you if you want to believe it. Hecker recounts a time when a nun began to meow like a cat. Okay, weird, but she might have been playing with a cat on the convent grounds. We all act weird and talk funny when we see cute animals, right? However, animals were not allowed on convent premises, let alone a cat. You see, at the time, cats were closely associated with the devil in Catholicism. Soon, the other nuns around her began to meow as well. It was said they meowed for hours at a time. Quote, The whole surrounding Christian neighborhood heard, with equal chagrin and astonishment, this daily cat concert. They probably sang hymns by meows. To help the nuns, the citizens near the convent sent soldiers to pretty much threaten the nuns into speaking again. It is said that they whip and beat the nuns until they promised to stop. And they did. Now, why would nuns meow in the first place? Well, remember like I said about cats being associated with the devil? It is possible the nuns were under the impression that they were being possessed by the devil. If the first nun was possessed, why would the other nuns meow? They could have been possessed. However, it could also have been conformity bias. This is the tendency to make decisions or judgments based on the other people's behaviors. For example, Sister Mary and now Sister Martha are meowing? Oh dang, this behavior is now accepted in this group. I'm going to meow as well to fit in. In my personal opinion, I had a lot of fun meowing those songs in the background. Those nuns had to repeat the same hymns and prayers all day for years. I personally would have been bored and decided to switch things up a little bit. Thank you again for listening to this crazy podcast. While I'm gone, you can support the podcast and River Sticks Audio by listening, sharing, and rating Creeping Up Katie as well as our other podcasts, Sex Appeal Woman on Trial. We have some pretty cool merchandise on both Redbubble and Society6 under River Sticks Audio. 
Once again, thank you so much for all your support. You will hear from us soon. Thank you. Creeping Out Katie was brought to you by River Sticks Audio and created by me, Katie Clark. For written transcripts, research credit, updates, and more, visit our website at riversticksaudio.wixsite.com. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of our other podcasts, follow our Instagram and Twitter under River Sticks Audio. Intro and outro song is Misconceptions by Mew. Background music, Maestro Chakalel by Jess Gallagher. Logo art by Melin Costello from MC Design.